All right, Tony. So who's who's Tony? Maybe you can introduce yourself uh, in, in, in a few sentences. Hi, I'm Tony Crabb. I'm a business psychologist. I work around the world with multinationals. And the thing that I'm most interested in is how to harness attention, how to harness attention as an individual and how to harness attention in organizations. Right. Thank you. Uh, thank you for the short um, intro. Uh, I find it personally very interesting, your title, business psychologist, and uh, I think it uh, brings up many questions in people's minds. Uh, most fundamental being, is business in such a bad shape that uh, it needs a psychologist or psychologists? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if it necessarily starts from being in bad shape. I think, look, we, we've seen that the the value that psychology can bring in all kinds of fields from sports to um, to business. The I think historically we looked very much at action. We looked at um, physical activity. We looked at the body, if you like. And increasingly we're recognizing that the brain and emotions are part of that. So really what my work does is it looks at how to help people to think, to feel and to behave better or if you like organizationally to look at how people are thinking in the organization um, what's the emotional temperature if you like of the organization and how to create shifts in sustainable shifts in behavior and, and habits in the organization so now to the to the bad shape I do think that there is a challenge in business at the moment I think our way of managing has typically made us slightly more machine-like, a bit like slightly rubbish robots. Mm -hmm. And I think when it comes to the the major transformations that are going on in the, in the digital transformation and the fourth industrial revolution, I think the only way we're going to succeed in the future, organizationally or individually, is to actually go back to what we do best as humans. What do we do best as humans? Well, I think in essence, I think it comes to um, thinking um, and grappling with with the big problems in life um, and having trying to have insight around those and making connections. It, it comes to creativity, and then it comes to human connection, empathy. Whether we want to call it empathy, whether we want to call it um, genuine and authentic connections between people, and. I think those three, and interestingly, the Davos World Economic Forum, when they looked at the core capabilities for the future, they boiled it down. I paraphrased their list of 10 down to three core ones, which are complex problem solving, creativity and, and empathy. And I think they're the things that actually our habit of endless productivity and efficiency and generally optimizing for more and more activity or busyness in the language of the book that I wrote is damaging each of those three and I think that's what we need to that's a major question we need to grapple with now if um, how, what's your experience because now it, it seems uh, based on this that uh, perhaps the objectives of business the constant growth, for example, as a, as a major driver, uh, are flawed from the start. So yeah. is, it, uh, is it possible to address the human side 
without addressing this fundamental flaw first? Well, look, I think there was a, a nice bit of research published in Harvard Business Review recently that, that characterized performance under two categories. They, they said, look, there's tactical performance, which is, shall we say, the execution of strategy, the delivery of strategy, the getting stuff done. And there's, there's adaptive performance, which is the second form of, you know, of, of performance, which is where creativity, innovation, new ways of approaching problems comes from. And I think what's happened is we've optimized for the former for an, an objective setting is, a, is a, a management by objectives. These are core parts of the, shall we say, the approach for tactical performance, but we've forgotten about the other. So would I, I think to, to say we, we can't have objectives or we need to do away with that, I, I don't think is, I, I think they perform a function, but as a lot of the research increasingly is showing in goal setting, that goal setting should almost be treated like a prescription drug. We, we use it as a panacea for everything. Mm. Um, but actually, goals are useful to drive activity because you can't endlessly sit in these kind of creative, um, empathetic conversations. Um, you also do need the, the discipline of getting things done as well. I think what's happened, though, is we're just way, way over skewed towards the activity and the goal setting and the management by objectives. And we're not enabling the kind of the conversations that happen, etc. When when you actually you optimize for relationship, for conversation. I mean, just to give one simple example, um, we if you think about the one of the consequences of the the third industrial revolution, if you like, which was really when the management by objectives mm -hmm. mantra came in, we. One of the things that we really pushed as organizations is the ambition. And we got people into managing careers. We got people into really focusing on setting objectives. And that's when the smart goals came in, et cetera, et cetera. All great. But what it does is it creates this atmosphere in organizations that are hyper competitive, where we're told we have to show up in meetings, where we have to be impressive, where we have to influence people, where, um, we have to build our brand. And all of this creates this kind of slightly fake, slightly kind of egocentric view of the way we operate in, in organizations. So we're constantly trying to out-impress everybody else. We're constantly trying to have our voice heard over other people. And all that does is it creates, it, it, it makes meetings into a series of um, contributions as opposed to a, an evolving dialogue where people build off each other. Um, and some interesting research is showing that something like 60% of people actively cover up big parts of their personality because, because it, somehow they feel it's inappropriate in this kind of, in this professional era that we're operating in where we all have to look impressive all the time. And of course, when we're covering up parts of our personality and we're not bringing our whole selves to our work, it's not surprising that we don't actually really value the, the, or get the get the benefit of the real value that can come from diverse populations in meetings. Right. Yes. Do you, yes. Do you, if I may ask, Tony, do you um, 
uh, encounter problems, let's say, if, if you bump into uh, organizations? I mean, do they, do they understand that? Do they understand what you're saying? Because, you know, the, the real world is around all people. I mean, you have Facebook, people are branding themselves on LinkedIn, uh, you have Instagram, yeah. whatever. And um, so do they see that as, as a problem? Do they understand it? Interesting. So, so the yes and no. So I, just about every organization I work with is obsessing about things like collaboration and diversity. Mm-hmm. But of course, how do they, how do most organizations today think about addressing collaboration and diversity? Look, we can all see the necessity in a networked age of collaboration and, and more diversity, therefore more creativity. Um, but how do they approach it? So, of course, the approach to collaboration by, you know, instigating a new social media platform or developing a new app. Um, they try and take, have a technological solution to it. They approach diversity by setting objectives and goals. Now, I'm not suggesting goal setting is not useful for diversity. I'm not suggesting social media platforms aren't helpful for collaboration, mm-hmm. but they're not the answer. The answer is more cultural. Um, when it comes to, I mean, I'm, I'm fortunate. I'm working with, I'm kind of one of the central people in in, in the culture change that's going on in Microsoft at the moment. I'm fortunate to, I design a series of events that all the managers in the world for Microsoft go through every year mm-hmm. to drive their cultural transformation. And one of the one of the big things that we're working on at the moment is how to create collaboration in a way that's more suited to the age we're in now, which is more about leveraging difference deliberately in people, which is more about creating more adaptive conversations, getting into more playful conversations that allow exploration and actually really getting people thinking about how do you listen to people? How do you work? So there are people, there are organizations that are starting to approach these issues from a cultural perspective. And of course, as any culture change requires, it requires real commitment from the top. Right. So so it's patchy. I think people are recognizing in the business world that questions like attention matter because they see everyone's overwhelmed and not thinking. They see collaboration as being essential. They, they see diversity and other things like this as, as being important. It's just not everyone has got very far in terms of coming up with what I would call proper cultural solutions and interventions, as opposed to just, you know, quick fixes with with apps or with yeah. objectives. Yeah, it's it's the easy way out, right? I can imagine it. I mean, I I also remember that um, when I've been working in some large companies as well, and um, you know, then the young people coming in like, ah, uh, oh, you guys, you you don't have a platform, you don't have an app, you don't have this, you don't have that, but at, at the same time. They're screaming for real attention and for real dialogue. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And and look, one of the one of the stats that I think is just fascinating is um, U.S. universities have tracked levels of empathy of of college entrants mm-hmm. for many years. And one of the studies recently found that the, the average level of empathy of people entering college today is forty percent less than it was fifteen years ago. Yeah. And I don't say that as any kind of um, anti-millennial kind of comment. I think I think it's just one of the things that's happening with our use of technology and, and the way that interferes with our relationships is we're getting much more used to transactional relationships as well. So 
to your point, they're asking for the app, but they're crying out for real conversation. What, what's happening, we're so used to transacting and liking and unliking people that we don't spend enough time in the messy, um, well, the messy reality of conversations where we're actually talking about things that are slightly conflictual, that are slightly different. But it's that tension between people, that difference between people that most of the juice for that we need for business creativity comes from. Mm-hmm. Um, can, can we reach back, for examples, uh, of organizations where the so-called uh, machine uh, part of the organization was uh, le- much less dominant than it is today and um, where potentially the human element dominated. Can we find organizations in the in the past that we can use as examples, uh, as patterns to follow? You know what? I don't think the past is the place to look. Actually, I think I actually think I think that the reason um, that we're talking about it now is actually more about the future. So uh, let me explain. I think if I look at the evolution of 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 work. Um, we started in the, you know, start the first industrial revolution. We 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 obsessed around. Well, that's when we really started looking at time because we had big machines, big technology, and we suddenly need to have people working to schedules. So so punctuality became, came to the fore, and we started working to the clock. We didn't really work to the clock before. So that's our first element of machine um, ways of working entering. Then of course, second industrial revolution was all about production lines and and the division of labor and we get people like um, Frederick Williamson Taylor who starts bringing scientific management into work and then all of a sudden work becomes much more taskified so we then start doing repeatable things much more often and we're, we're really obsessing about doing it quicker 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 um, and again more language of engineering enters um, and then of course we go to the third industrial revolution which we talked about earlier where we get into more about setting objectives because we're now working with knowledge workers who have more freedom so we then put the onus of of, of managing and productivity onto individuals and set goals now the reason i'm saying the answer isn't in the past is because actually each of those innovations the you know the scale that came from the first industrial revolution the efficiency and speed that came from the second and the kind of objective setting and goals and ambitions that came from the third all of those made a huge difference. Every one of those made organizations more successful. I think the problem is now that the issues that we're facing in the future, in the very near future, are of a different order. And I think the the, the pace of change and the requirement for things like innovation, insight, reflection, um, deep thinking, and genuine connections and empathy across organizations, these things are going to be increasingly performance, not just enablers, they're going to be performance critical because the problem, because, you know, the, the level of uncertainty, I mean, I, I've been in business consulting for, for years. I have never encountered the level of business uncertainty that people are facing, leaders are facing in organizations as today. It's just kind of, it, you know, people talked about change in the past. They talked about uncertainty to a degree but it was typically in discrete episodes the level of uncertainty people are feeling today where they just don't know where the business is going to go they just don't know what the problems are going to be it is of a different order something like 85 percent of of 
of people at leaving school today will end up doing jobs that don't exist um, in 10 years time mm -hmm. don't exist today in 10 years time we just don't know and so therefore we get into I gave the example of this tactical performance and adaptive performance earlier what we needed in the past was tactical performance and so therefore those ways of being were great and they delivered a lot of results they may have had harmed from a you know a well-being perspective on people but from an organizational perspective they, they were great when it looks at when you look at the future those things are going to kill us yeah. Absolutely. What I mean, uh, what can a, a manager do who is running uh, an organization? It doesn't matter what size, and uh, reports to a board. Uh, yeah. Sure that these dialogues even happen, and uh, this cultural change uh, will take place. Yeah. So, an individual manager. I think the starting point is to start looking at. Um, what aspects of, of the role of the people in his team um, involves, well, I, you know, just stick with this, this term, tactical performance, and what aspects of it require genuine um, imaginative thought, etc. I then, I then say, right, okay, how do we find different ways? Let's, let's, let's set goals and manage and monitor in the usual way the stuff that just get, needs to get done. And let's figure out different ways of playing in the adaptive areas. How do we get better conversations going? Um, now, for example, Google did some research where they looked at, because they're in, a, in an environment that's changing rapidly, as a lot of tech companies are. Mm -hmm. um, so there you could argue most of what they do is in the adaptive space. And they did some analysis, because they, they're big into data. They did some analysis over the top performing teams that they had. And the number one characteristic, the common trait of all the top performing teams is what they call psychological safety. Um, mm -hmm. Did people feel safe enough um, and trusting enough that they were able to challenge things, to question things, to show when they didn't understand things, um, to experiment and try things that they hadn't for fear that it might fail, but they were willing to do that because they had this safety. Um, and so we know, for example, one of the things managers can do is deliberately create environments that feel safer by by um, encouraging people to experiment and rewarding and actually one leader i worked with had a mistakes wall he had a wall covered with he actively encouraged people to put their mistakes on the wall to create a different language around um around failure um taking a learning or a growth mindset intentionally to the conversations that are happening. So deliberately look for what are we learning through this? How do we approach this and learn better? So there are things that we can do around adaptive um, work. And then, of course, when it comes to just attention, I think we can be much more intentional. And managers, a lot of my research when it comes to attention has looked at information overload and busyness. And one of the things that you can do is you can train individuals on some of the habits that help them to manage their attention better. But we now know one of the critical things in an organization for, for capturing attention better is the conversation that happens on a regular basis between manager and employee to help them to prioritize, to help them to make choices. And I think, again, managers are too focused on throwing more and more at, at employees but actually, I would say a better role for managers in the future is actually how to help employees do less and less, but better.
-hmm. Yeah, I can imagine. It it sounds hard in that sense that, um, I mean, every transition is difficult. Um, but this one sounds, uh, not because you say it, but in general, it sounds like people have to slow down. Then they have to do something that they dislearned, that they had to do maybe in the beginning. But now, you know, um, it might be difficult for them to uh, to adapt to that. Are you optimistic in, in that sense? You know, I really am. Because when, I'm, when I work with people and with teams who start actually thinking about these questions, mm -hmm. Because really, these are very human characteristics. These are things that that create more flow experiences. These are things that we actually are fairly. Um, they're almost evolutionarily, we're evolutionarily programmed to be rewarded for doing. Um, people respond really, really well to them. Mm -hmm. I'll give you an example. I, just a really trivial example. I was once on a, on a kind of panel being asked about um, networking. Is actually the topic that was talking about how do you how do you network effectively? And someone asked me, um, and incidentally, um, when most people hear the word networking, they almost get a reaction like like they've done something immoral because it's so fake for a lot of people. But anyway, someone asked me the question about how do you network? And I just explained I got one simple rule for networking. I only network with people that I actually like. I only make any effort to maintain a network with people that I actually like. And instantly, because it was over um, the internet, instantly the inst instant messaging thing lit up as if somehow I'd given permission for people to be human again in the in the interactions. Human, I mean, mm -hmm. you know, business should be a very human thing. And I think if, you, if we create opportunities for people to have just great conversations again, if we if we make it okay for people to be creative and to experiment with things and to play and to therefore make mistakes. If we create environments where we make it okay for people to think and to actually sit and linger for longer on problems that really matter, these are intrinsically rewarding things. So when people are given permission and given a bit of support to do it, they respond very positively to them, mm -hmm. but they do need to be given some support. Yeah, right. Um, uh, sorry, Laszlo, go ahead. No, no, go ahead, go ahead. Uh, no, uh, well, I was th I was thinking. I mean, this was from the manager's uh, perspective, and uh, but nowadays you have uh, you know <clears throat> uh, things like uh, holacracy, uh, self-steering teams. Um, I can imagine in, in in those circumstances, it's easier for an employee to arrange it. But what would be your hints and tips for employees how to how to deal with this? What can they do? Yeah, I mean. The starting point is do something. So, um, it, one of the things, one of the biggest impacts on um, on well-being is when we lose a sense of control over over our life and our work. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I often hear employees say is, "Well, I can't do anything because of the culture. I can't do anything because my manager. I can't do anything because of my family or because of my three children." Or, be, you know, yeah. we, and we come up with lots of excuses that trap us in a sense of learned helplessness. Um, so, I think one of the starting points is, however small, choose things that you feel are valuable and important. Mm -hmm. Shifts that you feel are valuable and important, and, and make some small moves in those directions. Uh, Teresa Amabile from Harvard has done some brilliant work on motivation, and one of the central 
things she's found about motivation is one of the biggest things that drives motivation is a sense of making progress on the things that matter. You don't have to make huge progress, small steps, but persistently towards the things that matter make a big difference. So the starting point is don't wait for others to change. Start moving yourself. Um, yeah. And, and, and then obviously, you know, we can get into broader things around um, how an individual can influence others. But but I think the starting point is don't put don't put it off and wait. Interestingly, I, I find if you speak to people in multinationals about you know about some of these challenges and about mm. busyness or whatever that they'll fantasize that wouldn't it be great if i was self-employed <laughs> or if i worked in a holacracy or, or whatever the case may be mm. because I, don't, I wouldn't have the the, the evil them mm -hmm. giving me all this stuff and then you speak to self-employed people and, and they they fantasize about wouldn't it be great if i wasn't self-employed if i worked in a big company because then i wouldn't have the same level of accountability and, and I, I wouldn't be so busy all the time for that and I think it's easy to, to, to think if only I was in a different role, if only I was in a, um, a different place. But the reality is most of us have things that are within our control to do. And, mm -hmm. and through doing that, we increase our resilience, we increase our confidence, and we also benefit from making changes. Right. So there's hope. So there is hope. Yeah. I completely. <laughs> I, I mean, I'm an optimist. I'm a, I'm a huge optimist. I actually think um the 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 uh, and look i'm a business psychologist i've been doing it for what 20 30 years and and the the depth yeah. of the conversation the the psychological interest that people have got in organizations today the the awareness of the emotional states of their employees these things have never been higher than the art today now it doesn't mean that organizations have the fluency and the capability to do things with them so far but but the awareness of the problem and the um the self-awareness of leaders is of a i think of a higher order now than it has been at any time in my working career because i think these things are coming to the fore yeah. I, I just think we're, we're at a turning point now. i think it's i actually think it's a hugely exciting period yeah i can imagine all right um <laughs> And we already are 30 minutes uh, on our way. Uh, Laszlo, you have still uh, some, some final question or or not, maybe? I don't know. Yes, uh, I, many questions. I mean, this is a very interesting, very interesting topic. And um, a couple of questions came to mind, I think, that would lead too far. So there would be no time for it. Um, seemingly stupid question, though, uh, for the end. Because now, we, you know, we see that there is a structure, the business environment, it's highly mechanistic, it works like a machine. And uh, at the beginning, we addressed that maybe the fundamental uh, purpose of business could be flawed and should be changed on one side. So instead of just uh, uh, being focused on optimizing and increasing profit, uh, going for growth as a strategy, maybe there should be, this should be changed. And on the other side, there are many changes that the organization should do themselves with their leaders and their employees to make the, make the place more human, so to speak. So there is this battle between these two objectives and, um, and changes are going along these two lines. Um, if you had the chance, and obviously you are working as a consultant, so <clears throat> for years you are not in a business environment. I assume there is a reason for that, for, for that as well. If you have the chance to build a company from scratch, 
So instead of making tweaks to an existing organization, but build one up from scratch, what kind of company would you build? That's a great question. Um, I mean, you, you touched on holacracies earlier. I think, look, the we we know there are some you know fundamental drivers that really affect people's motivation and engagement with work, and obviously autonomy is one of them. Having a clear purpose is another. Um, and so, yeah, if I was building a company from scratch, I'd want to do it around something that really matters and really mattered to and really make a company based around uh, um, a, a a mission, but not as a, a statement, but something that that was really real and relevant to anyone that that joined the company and also create an environment where there was as few rules as possible. Um, to allow um, to allow people to to collaborate, if you like, in a way that that made sense to them, and as few hierarchies as possible. Um, but um, and I think one where there was a sense of play, but not in the table tennis or snooker table in the in the mm-hmm. in the playroom, but a sense of um, willingness to experiment and try built into everything that happened. I think, I think play, term play and friendship are two um, are going to be two of the big business themes, big buzzwords over the coming sort of four or five years. Um, I think friendships being ignored mostly in organisations, and yet we collaborate best with people that we're friends with, you know? And so I, I think friendship and, and the quality of human relationships is going to come to the fore. But I think the other term that is going to come to the fore much more is play. Uh, and how do we encourage more play in organizations in a, in a business context? And I think those, those elements I'd like to build into a company. Um, but yeah, you, you mentioned, you know, I'm a consultant. Yeah. For, I just did it as a lifestyle choice. I just rather like the autonomy of doing my own thing and the freedom that comes from that. So that's why I, I didn't build a company. I didn't. My de- my desire was to impact the world through um, ideas, as opposed to through building some mega corp. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, cool. great. And 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 the way you paint your company, I think <clears throat> Laszlo and I will definitely going to work there once you would start. <laughs>